morning, everyone. Open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bible this morning, we're going to be on page 1089. This is week one of Revelation in earnest. We've been doing an introduction for about three weeks, and we've kind of danced around these verses, but we're going to uh, work on a couple other things in this section and continue our way through this book for the next uh, nine months or so. If you have any questions about anything we talk about this morning, you can um, go to slido.com and type RevCDA in the prompt and ask your questions, and we'll take a look at those at the end. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we are in so much need of your presence. We're so much in need of your being near us and with us in us, working through us. God, we are, um, as we've sung and as has been prayed, we, we are uh, broken people. We, we, know, um, we know that there is more to our lives than what we often experience. If we take the time to get away from all of the noise and, and, and are alone with ourselves, we, we feel the hole that needs to be filled with something. And God, that, that something is you. And I just pray that you would um, help us to draw near to you this morning. Help us to hear your voice. To meditate on, on these ideas about who you are and why it matters. And that as we wrestle with whatever it is, family and money and relationships and work and all of the things that just pile on to our hearts day after day, I just pray that you would help us to give those over to you and to become a people that practice giving those over to you over and over and over again because they always pile back on. And that by your spirit, we would, we would rest in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I, have, a, I have a theory. My theory is that anxiety is almost or maybe always about fear of the unknown. When we are anxious, when we are worried, I think it's because either we don't have control or because we can't make things perfect, or we don't know the answers, or that we're worried about the people that we love, or we need the approval of someone, but, but it all boils down to this idea of, I don't know what's going to happen. In my role as one of the pastors of this church, um, I know people don't do this but, anymore, but sometimes I use my phone to actually call people, and, and if I call you, I guarantee you, you're going to go, uh-oh, the pastor's calling me. Because that's just the, the, the vibe that I put off, apparently. But I frequently have conversations with people, and, and it's, what's going on? What's wrong? What did I do? Like, nothing. I just wanted to talk to you. Maybe you have a gift that I want to, uh, you know, ask you about. Or maybe I want to invite you to something. Or maybe I just want to say hi. It's fine. But then I do it too. I get a text from one of you and I'm like, hey, pastor, I think we need to have a meeting. And I go, uh-oh, what's happening? <laughs> I've just started, at, I've, I've begun practicing when people say they want a meeting. I just, right up front, I go, what is this meeting about? So that I don't have to freak out for the next seven days until we have it. And it's usually fine. But the fear, the anxiety, the worry is because I don't know. I, I, it's unknown to me, Right? And when we feel that way, whatever that is, whether it's small or large, we need to ground ourselves in the truth. 
And the truth that we think we need is that we need to know what's going to happen. I need to know what's on the other side of that meeting or what's going, what it's going to be like when that surgery takes place. We need information about the circumstances, right? Certainty about the future. But there's a problem with this. You know that proverb, um, give a man a fish and he will eat for the day, but teach a man to fish and he will eat for a lifetime? The problem with anxiety is that if I get the information I need to solve my anxiety today, tomorrow, turns out, there's going to be something else for me to be anxious about. And I'll need a whole new set of information to cure that anxiety. I can get 100% certain about that meeting, but my certainty about that meeting doesn't help the next one. What's going to happen the next time, and the next time, and the next time, and I'm going to continue to have to strive for more and more uh, pieces of truth to help me cure my anxiety. And this is why anxiety is so exhausting. It's why we, we are living this constant state of moving from circumstance to circumstance, trying to take control and make sure that everything is perfect and finding all the answers and making sure my people are okay and making sure that everyone approves with me. But what if there was a teach a man to fish way to take care of anxiety? I think this is how the Apostle John is starting this book. Because um, I've talked with many of you about our study, and, and some of you have actually said, you know, Revelation itself, this book, causes me anxiety. The idea that, like, the future is coming, like, I, I need some help there. The bad news about Revelation is when we get to the end, we're still not going to be certain about what's to come. Sorry. It's kind of confusing, and it can kind of be scary, and we can, we'll still be unsure. This book doesn't give us certainty at the end of the day, but what it does provide is tools by which we can learn to trust. Trust is different than certainty, both involve information, right? But trust gives us information that can overcome the ignorance of our circumstances. I can place my trust in something that's solid and I can go back to that trust over and over and over again as the circumstances of my life change. This is maybe a silly example, but imagine that you have lived your life forever without an alarm clock. You just, whenever you wake up, you wake up. That sounds pretty glorious to me, actually. Um, but then you got a job that, that you had to be at your job at 7 o'clock in the morning. And you just thought, like, well, what am I going to do? I, sometimes I get up at 6, but sometimes I sleep till 9. And I'm asleep, and I have no control over that. How am I supposed to meet these circumstances? But then, you know, you discover the fact that you can get an alarm clock and you can program it. And it will, it will stay up all night counting time and warn you with uh, the radio when it's time to get up. Once you begin to understand this, you still need information to overcome that anxiety. But your information is based not on the circumstances of the morning, but the trust of the alarm clock that this thing is designed to do what it does and I can rest, I can go to sleep, I can let go of control. That's, sleep is like the ultimate release of control, right? Knowing that I can put my trust in the alarm. The church in the first century is about to enter a season of uncertainty and fear. They're going to be tempted to compromise their faith, to walk away from Jesus, to ignore the truth. And for those that decide to stand firm in the gospel, they will be threatened with persecution, loss of income, exile, and death on the other side. And so when we get to the first section of Revelation, John, before he talks about all of the beasts and the trumpets and the crazy things, he's going to give us two big ideas that we can practice to help build trust. Those two things are 
what God is like and who we are because of him. And the more that we can internalize this information, the better off we will be facing the unknown, whatever that unknown happens to be. So first off, the the idea that what is God like? And the first thing that I want to point out, I'm going to go a little bit out of order this morning, but the first thing I want to point out is that God is omnipotent. Omnipotence, that means all-powerful. Look in verse 8. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. The Almighty. The the Greek word is pantokrator. Uh, and it's the Hebrew word is El Shaddai, if you're familiar with that phrase. And this is John's favorite title for God in the book of Revelation. The God that is represented to us in Revelation is almighty, all-powerful, without limit. There's nothing that God cannot do. Our God is a limitless being. And some people poke fun at that and say stuff like, well, can God make a rock that he can't lift? Or can God make a square circle? No, God doesn't contradict reality because he creates reality. But all the ways that a being could be without limit, God is without limit. Blaise Pascal said, the greatest single distinguishing feature of the omnipotence of God is that our imagination gets lost thinking about it. And if you spend much time thinking about infinite ideas, you just kind of, your eyes glaze over. It's, it's hard to get to. Speaking of Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is making sure the universe runs. When, when we have a problem, when, when, you, when you're struggling with something, do you assume that God has the power to handle it? Or do you just take care of it on your own? Or worse, do you stress out about it because you can't fix it and God probably can't either? A.W. Tozer, talking about omnipotence, says that there's, there's nothing easy or hard for God. And the way he illustrates this is, he says, assume that you as a human being have a hundred units of power. And you do some things during your day and they take 10 units, and that's pretty easy. And other things during your day, they take maybe 40 units. And by the time you get to like 98 units, it's time for bed because you got to recharge. God is almighty. God is all powerful. So how many units of power does God have? He has all of the units. And so when God does something that takes 10 units, how many units does he have left? All of them. When he does something that takes 1,000 units, how many units does he have left? All of them. Again, infinity is a weird number. But there is no difference for God between the prayer request, can you help me with this headache, and can you help me with this cancer? All things are possible with God. Now, God doesn't always have to answer our prayers with yes. Sometimes the headache or even the cancer is something that he intends to allow for our ultimate good. But what we are beginning to see in this book with these titles that John uses is that there is no problem that is too big for God to handle. The second thing that we see is that God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere in both time and space. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. This is repeated in verse 8. Way at the end of the book, we read some more. In, In chapter 22, we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega again. And he expands on it, the first and the last the beginning and the end. And this is language that John is borrowing from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 41 says, Who has performed and done this, calling all generations from the beginning? I am the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. A couple chapters later, this is what the Lord, the King of Israel, and its Redeemer, the Lord of armies, says, I am the first and the last. There is no God but me. 
in a few more chapters after that. Listen to me, Jacob and Israel, the one called by me. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. These verses in Isaiah are all either meant to intimidate God's enemies or comfort God's people. Because presence carries weight. Lack of presence invites evil. This is why crime happens at night. It's why cheating the company happens when the boss isn't around. But presence also invites safety. I was, um, I was doing a, a film project this week, and we were trying to get a comment from this little girl. And she was super talkative and excited to talk about anything. And then I pulled the camera out, and she froze and she just kind of like slowly walked backwards to find the leg of her teacher that she could grab onto. Because the presence of her teacher meant safety. And we, we read that God is always present all the time. I love this, this word picture by Thomas Watson. He says, God's center is everywhere, his circumference nowhere. Think about that for a couple hours. In Jeremiah, we read, Am I a God who is only near? This is the Lord's declaration. And not a God who is far away? Can a person hide in secret places where I cannot see him? The Lord's declaration. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? The Lord's declaration. Don't think of God as the water that fills the bucket of the universe. Think of God as the ocean with the bucket of the universe at the bottom. Paul says it this way, quoting Greek philosophers in Acts 17. He says, for in him we move, he live and move and have our being. God is ever present all around us. And we say things like, and, and I, I'm, I'm guilty of this, but we say things like, meet us here, or, or be present with us in our gathering. And these are innocent enough, but they are inaccurate. God is always here. The prayer should be, help us to recognize your presence among us. And the idea that the universe is contained within God makes the tragedy of sin even worse. Colossians says about Jesus, he is before all things and by him all things hold together. So whether you are a military leader executing genocide on a whole people group or alone in your bedroom abusing fellow human beings through pornography or lying just a little bit to an acquaintance to make yourself seem more impressive, you are doing all those things in the presence of God and your capacities to even do them are being given to you by the very, every moment by his grace in keeping the universe running. God is all-powerful. God is everywhere. And God is omniscient. This means all-knowing. In the second half of verse 4, we read that this, this letter is coming from the seven spirits before his throne. This is a little tricky. There's some disagreement here about what the seven spirits are. I think that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. We see the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son in this trio. And I'll, I'll show you why. In, in Revelation 4, we read the flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So we've got seven fiery torches being represented representative of the spirits of God. And don't, don't think of like single, like tiki torches. Think of this. This is a menorah. This would be similar to what would have been found in the temple. And John sees this symbol and says it's the seven spirits of God. Well, what he's thinking about is a, is a section in Zechariah. In Zechariah 4, we read, the angel who was speaking with me then returned and roused me as one awakened out of sleep. And he asked me, what do you see? I replied, I see a, gold, a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top. The lampstand also has seven lamps at the top with seven sprouts for each of the lamps. There are also two olive trees beside it and one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Then I asked the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? Don't you know what they are? Replied the angel who was speaking with me. Angels are kind of sarcastic most of the time. If you ever notice that, they kind of like poke at you. I said, no, my Lord. 
So he answered me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. So in this vision that Zechariah is having, he's seeing seven torches on a lampstand, and the angel says, this is a symbol of God's spirit. Additionally, in Isaiah 11, um, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of, of the Old Testament, we read, and the spirit of God shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and godliness shall fill him, the spirit of the fear of God. So there are seven aspects of the spirit of God that are listed here. But when we go back to Zechariah, the angel is still explaining this lampstand lamp that Zechariah is seeing. And in verse 10, the angel says, For who despises the day of small things? These seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the ceremonial stone in Zerubbabel's hand. And we don't have time to get into that. But the torches are also called eyes. And these eyes scan throughout the earth. Michael Heiser says the metaphor is one where light penetrates or removes darkness so that what is hidden is revealed. That is, these lamps represent God's omniscience and knowledge. By using this language of the Holy Spirit, with John connecting it to this passage in Zechariah, he's communicating that God knows everything. And this is an area of trust that I really need to internalize. I don't know about you, but I get deeply anxious when I don't know something. In fact, it, it happens all the time. It's usually, it's usually someone who's um, new to our church community, and they've been wrestling with some particular issue, right? And so they, again, they, they want to they get coffee, and it's like, whoa, what do we have coffee for? And then they throw out like, hey, what do you think about this? And I don't know, I haven't studied that. So I need to go home and read like 800 pages before I can give you an answer. And it's incredibly anxiety inducing to feel like I don't know. But the thing is, I don't have to know because God knows. And this can go a couple of different ways when it comes to our relationship with God. Again, in, in, the, in Hebrews, the author in chapter four says, no creature is hidden from him but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Here's a question. Who are you willing to be naked around? Maybe that's a big zero. Maybe it's once a year in front of your doctor. Maybe it's with your spouse. Remember that verse in Genesis chapter 2, the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. We have this, this understanding that that's weird, right? That's why that verse is in there. They're obviously talking about physical nakedness, but it's also total spiritual vulnerability. This is a person who knows all of me. And if you keep reading in Genesis or know anything about your own life, sin screws this up, doesn't it? Now all of our relationships are distorted with the, the ways that we create distance between one another. Our guilt, our fear, our shame, they all keep us from being truly known. Because being known is terrifying. In, in Hebrews, the word that he uses is exposed. That's never, I mean, unless you're talking about photography, that's never a good thing. But think about that relationship in which you can be naked, known, at some level, whether it's in front of your doctor or your spouse or a parent, there is, there's trust there. And it, it's, it might be a very fragile trust, right? It's a, it's a trust that cannot be abused without deep, deep consequences. But there's some part of us that understand that that vulnerability, that, that, that self-knowledge and that sharing of yourself completely with someone is, is something we deeply long for. And God's knowledge of us, then, is even more profound than that. Our nakedness before him is not just related to our exposure, but our very existence. His knowledge of us goes to the core of our being. David Benner says, if God does not know us, we do not exist. 
God's omniscience can either be an offense to our privacy, it can be a fearful thing, or it can be an invitation into deeper relationship. And it just depends on whether or not we can trust. God is almighty. God is everywhere. God knows everything. But then, then there's this, this fourth thing that's a little bit, it seems like it comes out of nowhere. God is human. In verse 5, we read this greeting is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And this is, this is where it takes an interesting turn. Jesus Christ, the third person in this trio, is a human being. And John says three things about him. He says that he is a faithful witness. And many of you know the story. The second person of the Godhead comes to earth. He assumes a human nature. He walks in obedience to the Father's will. And he dies to save people from sin and death. If you ever wondered what makes Christianity different than other faith traditions, this is it. It's a weird story. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For the Jew asks for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Jesus' methods are very odd. He conquers Satan by being conquered. He defeats death by dying. He removes our sin by placing it on himself. And this is going to come up a lot in the book of Revelation. We will see Jesus' people called to follow in Jesus' footsteps, to live a life that always seems counterintuitive. You want me to serve the people that are taking advantage of me? You want me to love those that are attempting to harm me? Right at the very beginning, we we find that this is the way Jesus did it. He was the faithful witness. But that's not all. He's the firstborn from the dead. You could say that that he is the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus, the God-man, is the first person to conquer death, to be released from its hold. Because he is both God and man. Death can't hold him. And the power of his resurrection is what gives everyone the ability to conquer death in him. If Jesus rose from the dead, you can be sure that you will too if you put your trust in him. And this might be the ultimate anxiety. I've, I've talked with some of you about this and you know, some of you in your 20s like stay up at night thinking about death. I have to admit, I don't, I don't do that. Maybe I'm the weird one. I, it doesn't really cross my mind, but many of us like worry about dying. What happens when you die? How do I know that I'll be okay? But John tells us the thing that Jesus did, he's the firstborn. He's the one that did it first. He went ahead of you in it. And what happened to him will happen to you. You will be resurrected. And then thirdly, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is where John goes, uh, the, the old saying is he goes from preaching to stepping on toes. As long as God is some otherworldly private experience that you have, no one cares. But John brings Jesus out from being a spiritual idea to being the guy that's in charge around here. Brian Tapp says the apocalypse clarifies for readers that the creator God not Caesar has ultimate authority and thus deserves ultimate allegiance. The whole of the New Testament is written using political language to speak about Jesus. Words like gospel and Lord and king. These are all words loaded with meaning connected to the Roman emperors. And in the first century, worship of the emperor was a growing thing. And it was a problem for the churches in Asia. All of the Caesars up to this point were called gods after their death. A few of them had written the word divine on their coinage. Domitian, the the Caesar ruling at this time, uh, Michael Gorman says, for example, was called at least by some lord of the earth, 
that present deity and Lord and God, the last of which he likely also applied to himself. And so the church is entering this time where their political culture and their faith were being blended together. And in Rome, emperor worship, it was not exclusive. The citizens of the empire worshiped all kinds of gods, and no one cared if you wanted to worship Jesus, as long as you also worship Caesar. Just once a year, you had to go to the temple, burn some incense, and swear your allegiance to Domitian, and then nobody cared. You'd do whatever you want for the rest of the year. Because the health of the nation depended on its citizens' spiritual allegiance to Rome. But the Christians said no. They said, we will not betray our Lord by giving what only belongs to him to someone else. The way modern theologian N.T. Wright says it is, if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. And this is where the Christians are going to get in trouble. Because when there's a natural disaster, or when there's an economic downturn, or when there's an enemy that attacks your city and all your neighbors know that you refuse to offer incense to the emperor, who do you think is going to get blamed? And this is what we see happen in the early centuries of the church. Christians are ostracized for their commitment to Jesus alone over and above the state. And John is starting to prepare the churches for what's to come by clearly stating who their allegiance belongs to. Jesus Christ is ruler of the kings of the earth. Richard Bauckham says, Revelation is the most powerful piece of political resistance literature from the period of the early empire. So we are being called into a relationship of trust, and this relationship is based around what God is like. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere. He's all-knowing, but he's also human, killed as resurrection, who is owed the allegiance of every person over and above every other ruler. But that's not where this section of the book ends. We also find out who we are because of him. Continuing on in verse 5, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins, by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. At the end of this description of what God is like, John breaks out into song. He's overwhelmed just thinking about God's greatness. And what does he say? He says, Jesus loves us. Present tense, right now, today. Jesus loves us. Jesus doesn't love a future version of you. Jesus doesn't love the Christian you used to be when you were younger and more committed. Jesus loves you today, right now. And this is something that we need to never get tired of saying If this reminder ever becomes rare in our church, I give you permission to come talk to me about it. Hey, I haven't heard about the love of Jesus for a while, Zach. You need to get back to that. Because it's so important that we internalize the fact that Jesus loves us. All the scary stuff about how God knows everything and he's all powerful and he sees you while you're sleeping and he knows while you're awake, you're right? That needs to be filtered through the lens that Jesus loves you. Think about that. Meditate on that. Absorb that into your soul. You are loved by God. Right after that verse in Hebrews about being naked and exposed, we continue reading and it says, therefore, because of that, Since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time 
of need. Because we are completely and fully known by God and yet still loved even in our brokenness, the author of Hebrews says, come to Jesus. Come before the throne. Ask for grace. Ask for mercy. Give all of your junk to him because he loves you. Listen to Jesus pray for us in John 17. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have for me the way, sorry, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Jesus says this overwhelming love that he shares with his father is something that he wants for us to experience. What is the evidence that we are loved? It's the second thing that John says that, that we have... We are loved present tense, but we have been set free past tense. The work of the cross has been completed for us. Jesus died and rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, and that work is done. There's nothing that you can do today or tomorrow or the next day that changes that because that work of love has been completed already. And I would say, too, I don't know everyone here, if you're not a Christian here this morning, maybe, maybe you've never heard this, or you're, you've come with a friend, or whatever your circumstances are, we're glad that you're here, but this is true for you as well. God loves you. Jesus died for you 2,000 years ago, knowing who you are and how broken your life is. And the invitation for you this morning is be reconciled to God. Surrender to the love of God for you. Give your life, your allegiance, and your future to King Jesus. And all of these realities can be true for you as well. John wants us to think about the Exodus here. For those of you that know the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel have been enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years and they've cried out for salvation and God hears their cry and sends Moses to rescue them. Um, it's a story that's been made in a couple movies. You've probably seen one of them. But God comes and he sets the people free from slavery. And John uses this language to remind us that we have been set free from the bondage to sin and death. And we can live into the life that Jesus has for us without fear of slavery to those enemies any longer. And it's, the reality is, is that those are very like, those are very easy churchy things to say, right? Like if you've been around Christians for any amount of time, like, yep, heard that before. Problem is, we just don't believe it, do we? We live our lives maybe giving lip service to it, maybe checking off boxes. Maybe if there was a quiz, you'd have all the right answers. But when it comes down to the everyday worries and pains and anxieties of your life, many of us just forget that that's true about us. And there's no easy answer to that other than to continue to press into Christ, to continue to be in the Word, to be in prayer and the community of God's people and to be continually reminded of those truths. But I have a book. <laughs> there's a stack of books over here. Um, there's a book called Gentle and Lowly. I don't know. I, I, we, we gave these out about a year or two ago, and there were some leftovers. I was thinking about them this week. It's written by an author named Dane Ortland, and it's, it's just, it's a beautiful, um, short, easy to read, just meditation and rejoicing on God's love for you, on the heart of Jesus for broken people. And if, if you're someone that really struggles to internalize that, I would just recommend after church, come up and take one of these. They're free. 
Um, if you know somebody that could really use a reminder of God's love, take a few. Um, it's just a really helpful tool, I think, to remind us of these ideas that Jesus loves us and set us free from sin and death. There's a lot more in these verses that we could talk about. Um, But we're going to just do a little bit of kind of extra interpretive theology at the end here, which I wasn't sure where to put this part, but uh, here it is. There are many things that we have to understand, and we've talked about them for three weeks, about how we understand the scriptures will shape how we read this book. And in verse 5, we read, To him who loves us and set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. One of the ways that we need to be clear on in order to understand this book well, and and depending on how you land here, you're going to interpret it differently, is the question of who are the people of God? And this is a question that Christians for, you know, 2,000 years have disagreed about. And the, the big The big question is, does God have one people or two people? Is Israel the chosen people over here and the church is a separate group of people over here? Or is there just one people of God? And I want, there's a couple ways to see it. We talked a little bit about dispensationalism last week. Dispensationalism is one of the major ideas that has shaped this understanding that there are two people of God. Um, If you're familiar with it as a system, ethnic Israel was chosen, brought out of Egypt, made God's people. They were given promises. They were given authority. They were given a mission. Um, They were told to await their Messiah. Jesus came and they rejected him. So God pushed pause on his plan for Israel, set them aside, and switches to this new organism that he creates called the church. And the church goes through the centuries and preaches the gospel and brings out the kingdom of God until one day the church will be removed. This is the idea that is called the rapture. The church is removed from the earth and God puts his focus back on Israel and then we read in Revelation, there's, there's this period of tribulation followed by the return of Christ and the millennium, which is a, a kingdom on earth where the promises of Israel are fully fulfilled. There's a lot of different ways to parse that out, but that's kind of a basic overview. So there are very clearly two people of God, the people of Israel and the church. There's another view called supersessionism, or maybe you've heard it referred to as replacement theology. And the way this works is that ethnic Israel was chosen by God. They were given a shot to be faithful. They screwed it up, and God got rid of them and replaced them with the church, this new people. The reality is both of these frameworks have two separate people of God, don't they? They have two people of God that are worked out differently in different ways, or they have two people of God that are one is discontinued and the other started. There's another understanding of of this framework that I think is more helpful. Um, Sometimes it's been called remnant theology. And this is the idea that there is one people of God. And it's never definitively, exclusively by bloodline. And it's made up of the people that follow Yahweh. And throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is working to create a people for himself oftentimes through the ethnic people of Israel, but also adding people from outside Israel into that pot, people that believe, that trust. There are multiple examples in the Old Testament of this. And then in the New Testament, the people of God, Israel, they, they find their, that their Messiah has come. And many of them reject him, but not all of them do. And, and they, are, they aren't rejected by God, but the door is open for non-Jewish people in mass to be added to the people of God. And I think this is the best way to make sense of all the ways that the New Testament 
applies the promises of Israel to the church. And there's two examples of this in this passage. So we said that, that John uses Exodus language to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Well, he's lifting that from Exodus 19. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you're to say to the Israelites. So the Israelites come out of Egypt. They've been set free from their captivity, and they've been given the title kingdom of priests. And John takes this title and applies it to the Christians in the churches in Revelation. Then he talks about the Lord coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And even those who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Well, that's a, another passage that John is lifting from Zechariah. Zechariah 12 says, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly for him as one who weeps for a firstborn. Zechariah speaks of the nation of Israel seeing their Messiah, the one that they pierced, which is a super interesting prophetic passage for a lot of reasons, and then mourning and repentance over what they had done. But John takes this passage and he applies it to all the nations. And we're going to see John do this over and over and over again throughout this book. He's going to take words that are spoken to, the, to ethnic Israel in the Old Testament, and he's going to apply them to Christians. And the way that you understand that will have a major effect on how you interpret the book. What I think is being communicated here is that we are a kingdom of priests, not because Israel has failed and forfeited their place in God's plan, but because the church is the extension of Israel in God's plan. In Paul's language in Romans 9 through 11, he would say, we have been grafted into the olive tree that was already there. If you know anything about grafting, which I know very little, you take a plant that's in the ground and you take another plant and you put them together and you tie it up so that they grow into one. You don't take the plant and pull it out of the earth and replace it with a new plant. The first plant is still there. You just add something else to it. And Paul uses this example in Romans to talk about how the people of Israel are still the people of God. But their role has been expanded and the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, have been invited into it. And so, as we go through this book, my assumption is that there is going to be continuity between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. That Israel in the Old Testament hasn't been forsaken and replaced, but that we are all the same family continuing to walk in the promises that God has given to his people. So this passage, and again, we could, we could spend weeks in here, but we won't. This passage reminds us that God is able because of his unlimited nature, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his um, omniscience. He is able to be faithful to his promises to his people in every age, whether he made promises long ago or he's making them today. And that we can be secure in trusting that he loves us and has freed us from sin and death. And while we may not have the information we need to play out all of the circumstances that might be coming our way, we have the information that we need to trust in the character of who God is and know that whatever is coming, he can take care of on our behalf. Let's do some questions. Does not trust gain traction only when we surrender all to him? Hmm. 
Yeah, that's a good word. We like to dole out trust in like little increments, don't we? Like, I'll trust you a little bit and see how it goes. And I think God is patient with us when we do that, but Jesus' call is all in, right? Give everything to me. Yeah, that's a good word. Is that it? Are there any more? Is that one? Okay, cool. Thanks for that comment. We're going to take communion. And speaking of disagreements, there's a long disagreement about God's presence in communion. God, as we said, is God is present everywhere, right? But throughout the ages, the church has thought that there is something special about his presence in the bread and the cup. There is a special gift of his presence here at this table. And we don't know how that works exactly. There have been groups of Christians throughout the ages that have tried to like figure it out. But it is something that we can receive this morning by trusting him. And so I would invite you, no matter what's going on in your world, no matter what anxiety you're feeling, no matter um, how you feel like things are out of control, to just reaffirm your trust in Jesus this morning by being reminded of his sacrifice for you on the cross. Reminded of his truth that he loves you right now today because of what he did back then. Take the bread representing his broken body and the cup representing his blood shed for you. Take it back to your seat and just practice gratitude for his love for you this morning. Um, if you're not a Christian and you want to be, you can. You can decide to trust in Christ today and come and take the communion meal as evidence of his love for you. I would invite you to um, use this space as you feel led. You can sit or stand. You can come kneel at the prayer rugs. Sometimes changing the posture of your body helps you change the posture of your heart. And we're going to spend some time worshiping together through song, reminding each other of the truth of the gospel as we sing. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.